Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Phoenix Cast. host, M. Alves, and joining me today is Megan Cullen. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. Um, M, what was it that you wanted to call back to from our last episode? Uh, something that you said that I don't actually think we talked about, though, that um, sort of uh, triggered something for me was, you know, like not being out and kind of like, I know that for myself as a bisexual person, like every movie I saw ended in tragedy with queer people. Miami was a pretty homophobic place and it's, it's very different now, but like when people are like, oh, Miami, South Beach, gay, I'm like, you're thinking of like literally a different city. That's not Miami. Miami itself is pretty homophobic. Like I remember just seeing every, even for in middle school, right? Like when I had some of my friends who were first coming out and starting to date, everything was so secretive, right? And so like, that was the lesson I took away is that if I ever wanted to be true to like my feelings and have relationships with people um, who have the same gender as I do or who are outside of binary or who are like, well, that's me. So this gets complicated because yeah, bisexual, non-binary, it happens. Yes. (laughs) That it was almost like this message that it would never be a healthy relationship, that it was Mm. always going to have an expiration date, whether that was uh, one where, you know, like classic death. Yeah. Death or classic like lesbian until graduation and then like you figure out that like society doesn't want you to do that and you like right like all of those things those were at 13 those were are what I thought my options were as a queer person mm, yeah and I remember even saying I like to some of the few friends I was out to in high school I was like I'm probably just gonna be gay in college <laughs> like which is like such a awful thing but that's the message that a lot, like when we talk about healthy relationships, I get yeah. so frustrated because even when we're talking about like sex ed in our schools, like we never mm-hmm. even tell people mm-hmm. what does a healthy relationship look like for queer folks. And so we don't talk about what a healthy relationship looks like for straight people. Right. <laughs> it doesn't happen, period. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I kind of just wanted to hear like, I mean, was that your experience? Like, were mm-hmm. you... Because I know, like, I actually don't think I know your, like, coming out story. I don't know if, like, you knew for a long time and you just waited or if it was, like, I got to college and I was, like, whoa, Mm -hmm. pretty. (laughs) Like, I don't don't know. (laughs) Women are pretty. Um, For me, so it was interesting, right? Like, I didn't have a lot of exposure necessarily to queer media the way that you and Harriet were talking about it. Trying to like really at all. Like I understood lesbian, I understood gay, I started to understand bisexual, but like because there were like people sort of in my periphery that I was, you know, um that I knew that were gay or lesbian. I didn't know a lot of bi people. I knew it was a thing. I think that my first and it's it's complicated, I think, for me because I think my a lot of the like not great shit that I got from my own childhood, my growing up, my family, whatever, really put a lot of focus on like, how do you get a man? How do you please a man? How do you keep a man? Like that was very present for me. And so like the first time I thought about 
like any kind of interaction with a person of the same gender identity as me, it was performative, right? It was like Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl. Like, not the song itself, because I had the thoughts before I heard the song, but like the song very much encapsulates like the way I thought about it, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until like, I must have been... Oh gosh, I don't even know. First girl that I was really actually kind of interested in, bless her, is one of my very best friends. We're still friends to this day. Love her to pieces. And she was the first person who like mentioned the term bisexual. She was out. She was bisexual. And like everybody was like very intrigued by what this whole thing was. <laughs> like like the, the big mouth episode almost. Yeah, yeah. So and like I was. I was intrigued by her and I was intrigued by it, but I wasn't at a point where I felt like, oh yeah, like this is how I identify. And I think a lot of the reason that I pushed her and that potential to the side was very much because I was like, no, but I want to like, I want to get married and I want to have kids and that's ever present for me. And the idea of being with a woman and being married and having kids was so far outside of my understanding that it didn't fit that's exactly how I felt. Right. Like yeah. I also wanted kids. And then I went through a period where I was like, Oh, I don't want, <laughs> uh, and, and now I'm back. I, I do want a kid. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that was part of why I was like, maybe like the way that I will finally be able to experience my queerness is only in college. And then I get married and have a kid. Right. Right. And, uh, and then real life starts. Right. And that was such like a harmful, a harmful place to start right like and I think about like some of even yeah. the early relationships that I could have had with women that I like I I actually purposefully sabotaged because I was like this is always gonna end badly yep which is like I didn't let myself have that closeness and build what it could actually be a healthy relationship because everyone around me told me that this doesn't work yeah and it took a long time to unlearn that And it's internalized, right? Because I think about like the first person that like I really honestly should have dated, like the first woman I should have dated, who is also now still a very good friend of mine. (laughs) There was an opportunity and there was an option there and we were like this close and I sabotaged it. And I, when I think back to why I did that, like beyond the fact that I had just gotten out of another relationship that was not great. So that was poor timing all around. I didn't know the script and I was so daunted by like, what, how do I even do this? I know the script in a heteronormative relationship. I know what to do. I know what my, what my job is, which there is so much to unpack in that concept. So I don't even know, like, I'll kiss you. I'll play with you. But like, I don't know how to like love you, I guess. Yeah. Oh my God. So, um, while you were saying that, I'm like, oh, that's literally what I'm listening to in sexual citizens right now. Cause it's really interesting because like in many ways, right? Like it's a huge disservice that there's no scripts for queer folks, right? And when it comes to mainstream sex ed, right? So comprehensive sexuality education includes everyone. It makes sure that it accounts for culture, ability, sexuality, gender, all of the things that makes a person a person and and who they are. And most sex ed isn't like that. And it was really interesting because it was like sexual citizens poses this question or this hypothesis of queer folks experience more sexual assault, not because 
they're more vulnerable, but because they haven't bought into the heteronormative script of what's okay. Mm. Right. So like when you as a queer person are going to a party, mostly by straight college students, and someone is like grabbing your butt or groping you, some straight people don't define that as assault because they they call it kind of like, well, that's, you know, that's what dating is. And you kind of got to get used to that if you expect to date. That's flirting. No, it's not. <laughs> right. And then queer folks are like, you are violating my autonomy. And, and obviously this is in very, like, this is generalized. And like, we are not going to say that every queer person feels this way. And every straight person is what well, expects to be groped. Yeah. Right. Like, that's not what we're <laughs> saying. But it's, it's sort of like, why do we see these larger patterns of like, quote, unquote, mm queer people being more vulnerable to violence. And mm-hmm. is it, so part of it is like more vulnerable and lack of resources. And part of it is that they are willing to call assault, assault. That's a great point. And, and but in also doing that, they're able to create these really new transformative scripts of what healthy relationships look like because there's no rules. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. this is, this, and like, that was my experience in college, right? Like I finally had a space to be a queer person who was out and didn't have to hide any part of myself in the safe space that I had in college. Mm-hmm. And I could play around with like, what does a healthy queer relationship look like? And how do I make this like a joyous, wonderful, emotional connection that the movies told me I couldn't have unless someone died? I love that so much for you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that's so wonderful. No, that's great. And I, you know, it's interesting because I think like, where for you, like that really happened in college, like that, like we get to de- deconstruct and decide what a relationship looks like sort of started for me as my, my first marriage was ending, which I'm just going to like put a blast out there to like the world. There are a lot of people that get married early and divorced like late twenties. I felt like the most alone person in the world because who does that? But it happens a lot. So that's my small, tiny soapbox. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but I think like it started right as my relationship, my per- first marriage was ending, right? Because what had basically for me, functionally, what had happened was that I had followed the script and I had done what I was supposed to do. And I found a man who was perfect for me on paper and we got married because we loved each other. And it seems like the next indicated step and like, we moved in together. We were moved in together before we got married, but like we did all of the things I had it. Like I had everything I was supposed to have and I was desperately unhappy. So then I was like, well, okay, hang on. <laughs> what I, if I had it, I followed the rules. Yes. Where is my reward? <laughs> right. I did what I was supposed to do. Universe. Give me my gold star. Damn it. <laughs> And like, so reimagining, like as I got into the relationship that turned into my second marriage and now my life partnership, it was really about what, what works for us. What doesn't, what is good for you? What is not good for you? And then further, like as we got further into our relationship and decided to pursue, you know, ethical non-monogamy, that was even more like, if honestly, this is in a sense, so crunchy granola, it felt like, like a transcendent moment where I was just like, there are no rules. And I've been playing by someone else's expectations my entire life. And now I'm going to play by mine. Like it just felt so like light shined down on me in a cartoonish way. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> no, I mean, like, I don't, <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, I think that considering all of the crunchy granola things I do, you would have to have someone with a low bar for too much. <laughs> I don't think that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> Fair. Um, but yeah, I think that as individualistic as Americans are, we very much still follow a script of like, what's okay when it comes to things that are like, quote unquote, family values, which I still don't really know what, what that means, right? Like, mm-hmm. what? Family values right now, and maybe it's just like the atmosphere that we're in, that terminology makes me cringe because it just feels like a dog whistle for like homophobia right, and transphobia. Absolutely. Right. And that's something that we know has been in the United States since 1776. It's like this big American contradiction. And I think that if you live within the borders of the United States, like it's impossible not to be affected by what people tell you a relationship should look like. Yeah. Especially because it's until it's not until very, very recently that our media has started challenging some of these things. I can't even tell you how many men I have talked to who have been like, yeah, I get a lot of flack because I want to cook for my partner. I want to cook for my partner who's a woman. Cool. And I want to I, I want to fix her a plate. And I get like a lot of judgment mm. for that. And people are like, oh, like she should be doing that for you and stuff mm. like that. And like, that's so disheartening, right? Like, because it's on one side, we know better. And then on the other side, in practice, it doesn't actually turn out that way. It's just like in like, for me, it's like, oh, yeah, cheating is bad in theory. But we know that in practice, many people stay. Mm -hmm. And like, that's something for them to decide. Like, I can't place judgment unless there are abusive elements. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. And not to like drop this like little nugget we could talk forever about uh, in our last couple minutes. But like, when you talk about how it is impossible to live within the borders of America, and not be impacted by the rest of America. I just thought about like, do you remember when Facebook was newish and like being Facebook official was very important? Oh yeah. Uh, you remember that? I sure do. And I don't know, is that something that's like lapsed in culture or I've just aged out of it? <laughs> so here's, okay. So kind of both. Okay, good. Yeah. Tell me. Okay. So my understanding and, you know, as a, as a millennial, any Gen Z folks can write in and, and correct. Oh yeah. You tell us that we're wrong. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I'm sure I am absolutely wrong about you, Gen Z. This is not sarcasm. So something that I've noticed is that Gen Z is like really over Facebook. They do not care about Facebook. It's not interesting to them. If anything, they have like Instagram and it seems like Tumblr is coming back. Maybe. Really? I'm like, now I feel a little old because I was like, I went through the whole, like, I think Live Journal too. I went through like the whole thing of like Live Journal was the thing and then that died and then Tumblr was the thing and then that died. And is it comes back, I'm just going to feel ready to retire, maybe. Fine. I'm here for you. <laughs> no, you're right. I think I've, I've heard that as well. That Facebook is like, yeah, I have a Facebook to like, you know, friend my grandma. And I'm like, okay, listen. (laughs) Yeah. It becomes like this thing where it's, it's kind of, it's the millennial thing. Like Facebook is for millennials. And then it's for the boomer parents that millennials taught how to use Facebook. Like that's how it went for me. Yep. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But I think like to that point of like how relationship expectations and scripts show up, right. It, It was suddenly an option that you were going to be putting out into the world at large right? Are you single? Are you in a relationship? Or is it complicated? Those are the only three options. 
Right. Right. And it was a big deal when they were like in an open relationship. And so for folks that I know um, who are ethically non-monogamous, they were just like, that's not what I'm doing though. Right. So (laughs) that was also interesting, but we'll get, we'll get into that in our ethical non-monogamy series. Yes. Cause there's so much to unpack when you start talking about ethical non-monogamy and we don't want to just like blow by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much to talk about and learn. And even if you're not uh, non-monogamous, there's like lots of different communicative practices that ethically non-monogamous people use um, for clarity mm-hmm. that could benefit anyone in any relationship. Absolutely. I feel like I got a communication masterclass when I started pursuing it because I was just like, oh, wow. Oh, we have to talk about things with, with words, <laughs> all of the things with all of the words. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan, for joining me today um, to talk about our coming out journey. Um, It it looks different for everyone. And I'm always interested in hearing how people have been affected by our media, how people like where they were in their coming out process and how, how they got there. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about that. Uh, oh, thank you so much. Um, so next week, we uh, are going to be having a wonderful episode, tentatively called Fighting Fair slash Purposeful Arguments, where we kind of break down, like, how do you have disagreements in a relationship and respect each other during that and be on the same team? Yes, Harriet uh, McTeague. One of, one of our amazing advocates in the office will be joining us for that discussion. And I'm really, really excited for you all to hear about that. Thank you so much uh, to our listeners. Please remember to share, subscribe, leave a five-star review. Um, and also remember that the PCA remains open amid COVID-19 concerns. You can set virtual appointments with us through our website. And you can also reach us at 303 556 2255 247